What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The spice. The spice is indeed in the air, Josh. After a long wait, Dune is finally here. The Denis Villeneuve sci-fi epic comes to theaters this weekend, and we've got a review. And we continue our Jane Campion oeuvre review with 1999's ripe for reappraisal Holy Smoke, starring Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. That and more spice melange ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Ridley Scott's The Last Duel tanked at the box office last weekend. Josh, neither of us made it out to the theater to see it, nor obviously did we review it. Are we to blame? Yeah, although I'm losing track of all the movies we're supposed to be saving now by going to mm. see in the theater. Just there's so much, so much high stakes to every release, it feels like these days. <laughs> It received generally favorable reviews from critics who saw it, including a couple of raves, but now that it has been shunned by audiences, it's getting a full-throated defense on social media. What happens next with the film? Is this the makings of a future cult classic? Possibly. Maybe. So no last dual review from us this week either, but we will get to the fifth film in our Jane Campion oeuvre review, 1999's Holy Smoke. After three consecutive period dramas from Campion, holy smoke, exclamation point, use it if you see fit, Josh, is something completely different. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the exclamation point. I I know we talked it up last episode, but it's on some posters, but not others. IMDb doesn't use it. Right. Nor is it in the film itself when we get the great effect of the smoke forming the title. I Mm. noticed no exclamation point. All right. Before we get to Holy Smoke, let's head to Arrakis, otherwise known as Dune. A boy. <laughs> Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always. You know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! Warning to our production team, Sam and Joe, I'm going to use my inner voice for this setup. (laughs) Should be interesting. (laughs) I don't know if it will actually pick up or not. You've now seen two adaptations, Josh, of Frank Herbert's Dune in the past year. Pop quiz. What is the quiz that's Hatterack? Oh, I could tell you that. That's that's who uh, Paul is supposed to be or become, right? Mm-hmm. The, the messianic figure he's okay. supposed to become. Well, let me give you a little bit more detail. The ultimate goal of the Benny Gesserit sisterhood, 
up to the end of the novel Dune is the creation of a male Bene Gesserit they call the Kwisatz Haderach. There you go. They intend to achieve this super being through a massive human breeding program, which they have conducted for countless generations. Using careful manipulations of relationships and breeding sisters to collect key genes, the Bene Gesserit have controlled and finessed bloodlines through the ages. Also called the one who can be two places simultaneously or the one who can be many places at once, the Kwisatz Haderach, defined by Herbert as the shortening of the way, with supreme prescience and access to both male and female lines in other memory, will be an overt figure in the Bene Gesserit's manipulations, thrust upon the universe as a messiah, so saith Wikipedia. Yeah, that's pretty much what I said. Exactly. That's a lot to unpack, isn't it? This is a minor thing, one I'm probably ascribing too much importance and intention to, but in David Lynch's 1984 take on Dune, such terms are thrown around so liberally and so matter-of-factly that the film practically taunts you to try to keep up. Whereas in Denis Villeneuve's version, the first time we hear Kwisatz Haderach uttered, I believe, by Charlotte Rampling's Benny Gesserit Reverend Mother, Rampling puts some extra zing into her pronunciation, as if the words, even for someone as powerful and all-knowing as she is, are mysterious and magical, portending something magnificent. As you may recall, back on Film Spotting 801, Josh, I prompted our conversation about Lynch's Dune by asking you to put on your Benny Gesserit robe to see into the future and project what a successful Villeneuvean vision looked like. Your answer, succinctly, dispense with all the lore cut the characters in half essentially give us less well Villeneuve didn't really reduce the cast size so he just cut the whole story in half <laughs> but we'll get to that processes like achieving a super being a massive human breeding program sisters collecting key genes other memory whatever that is they're alluded to at least I think they are but the details and machinations are secondary to how they affect Rebecca Ferguson's Lady Jessica and her relationships with her Benny Gesserit teacher, her partner, Oscar Isaac's Duke Leto, and yes, the prospective Kwisatz Haderach himself, her son, Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet. Is it possible, Josh, that Villeneuve saw your Dune dream and made it real? <laughs> Well, now's the time I should tell you that I was a consultant on the film, Adam, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why that's why I like it so much. I, I do like this Dune. I like it better than Lynch's version, um, which we covered in great detail uh, when we talked about that film and, you know, a few things we liked about it, but mostly recognized that it didn't quite work. It does seem to me that Villeneuve and uh, his co-screenwriters here, Eric Roth, John Spates, they have done away with a good amount of the lore and the nomenclature. I think, mm -hmm. you know, everything you described is there. It's alluded to, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't feel dumped on us in a way that it was in in Lynch's Dune. And, and for me, that um, is crucial. It makes, you know, all the difference in the world. Also, as you alluded, um, you know, he, he didn't cut the cast in half because he's essentially doubled his running time. That's <laughs> he, right. This is part one, which... I don't know where I've been. No, but, I had no idea. Oh, good. I am so glad no. you said that because I, I mean, thought I'm I was going to 
come across as the world's biggest idiot. I'm sitting down for this movie and this, you know, proves that I really don't read much about films or even watch no. trailers ahead of time because I sit down for this movie and I see part one on the title and I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, knew it was a long running time, figured at some point we would get part two. You know, he just decided to give us chapters as films occasionally do. So yeah. when this thing just cut off, mm-hmm. I was shocked. And this is a compliment to the movie because even after that long running time, I was completely lost in the world that had been built and the characters that I had been with that I felt sort of, it was, I wasn't anticipating an end at all. I wasn't wanting out. Let me put it that way. And boy, did I want out of Lynch's Dune in a lot of moments when I was getting overwhelmed and dumped on. So it is a credit to Villeneuve's um, achievement here that I was mesmerized, even though he had a lot of this stuff still in it. This plot is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the question for me, you know, I was mesmerized aesthetically. I'm going to say that um, by the sights and the sounds um, and the costumes and uh, all that stuff in this movie, uh, the production design. I'm curious to hear if, um, you know, you found this to be more than that sort of aesthetic experience or if that was all it was, and if that's all it was, if it was enough for you, because there are, there are some ways, you know, I think I'm not, I didn't appreciate this as much as some of the other critics I have now seen responding to it who are mm-hmm. really high on it. Um, for me, though, it was enough of this aesthetic experience to really appreciate and really captivate me, captivate me right, right up to the unexpected ending. Yeah, I can see that. And I felt some of that same appreciation for sure. I'm going to go the other way on the decision to cut it off, but we'll get to that. I'm not going to quite go the other way when it comes to the movie overall, which I did like, though I would say I'm I'm a little less enthusiastic than you. There's no doubt here that Villeneuve has elevated dramatically the production value, and we will talk about some of those specific examples, I'm sure. He's improved the consistency and quality of the casting and the performances. And he has definitely gotten rid of the ridiculousness. He has fixed, if you will, the campiness that we experience with David Lynch's Dune. I was looking back at my notes from that earlier today, and I had just a category in some bullet points. The category was campiness, and the bullets included things like mine guns, very Flash Gordon. Wow, those shield effects. Blob montage, what? And some scenes look the black hole-esque. Okay, he has fixed that. That That is completely absent here. But is it possible that that smothered under all of that immaculate production design that we've lost some of the fun? I mean, we talked about elements of Dune, despite the kind of disaster it was commercially and critically, and even the disaster Lynch himself seems to think of it as, we talked about how there are still elements of it that come through as Lynchian. A character in Paul who comes off almost like McLaughlin's Jeffrey Beaumont character in Blue Velvet, who's kind of a detective who's trying to hunt down these clues, the dreams he's trying to make sense of. And this whole idea that he is a dreamer and a sleeper must awaken, that's a line we get in Lynch's Dune. And it makes me think, of course, about Inland Empire and Lost Highway and Betty Elms in Mulholland Drive. 
There are probably auteurist touches here. I mean, one obvious one is it seems like Denis Villeneuve loves spiders and technology that looks like spiders. And there are elements here that feel reminiscent of Blade Runner 2049. But I don't I don't know his work well enough, haven't studied it closely enough to really dive into that. But my larger point here is that it's not just about whether I see a filmmaker's fingerprints or not and whether or not that immediately gives it some kind of artistic value. It's whether there's anything there to latch on to beyond the basic satisfaction of the narrative. And I didn't feel like I got much here beyond a fairly conventional messianic hero's journey, which also sets up another kind of conundrum and contradiction here for me, Josh, which is he fixed Dune's production shortcomings, and we can argue about whether or not that truly improved the movie overall. He did also streamline it considerably, as we noted, by stretching it into two parts. That allows more room for character development, fewer subplots, fewer weird names and phrases that are jammed in and confuse and, and sometimes amuse. But then it, it also, for me, diluted the payoff a little bit. There's just no real narrative momentum or urgency because there's nothing to resolve. It kind of becomes clear if you didn't already know it when it said part one on the screen, about halfway through, it becomes pretty clear that this is this is going to end like the Fellowship of the Ring. It's going to end with with a whole separate journey about to take place. And yeah, that movie worked and that series worked, but the experience for me in the moment felt a little bit like we were we were marking time. The stakes of it felt a little low for me because of that decision to separate it, even as that solves some of Lynch's problems. Yeah, I don't know how I would have responded. Like I said, I did not figure that out. I, I was so lost in um, this very tactile world that uh, he and his filmmaking team had designed that I didn't know we were going to be left hanging. And so if I did know that, maybe it would have felt a little bit more of a slog. I agree with you. There, There is, you know, almost zero humor in this movie. This is hugely portentous and serious and self-serious. And, and I think that tone works for the material. I, I don't think you want any, um, you know, gee whiz star Wars stuff kind of seeping into in here. I just, I just don't know if, even though there are some similarities, um, in terms of the narrative, uh, I still don't know if that would work for what we've got here. Uh, but I'm going to go back to, you know, I'll, I'll mention Star Wars in terms of, and this is the 77 Star Wars, just that tactile aesthetic where it seems like a future world um, mm -hmm. that you could absolutely live in. Um, and then it also has, this goes back to the seriousness, it has a 2001 sensibility. And yes, I know yeah. that Kubrick has a lot of dark humor uh, in 2001, but, but I'm just talking about um, this overall kind of ominousness. That 2001 had. And I think with those two combinations working together, it the movie really did put me under a trance. Um, I think maybe one auteurist touch for Villeneuve, at least in movies like, you know, Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival, are just the attention to uh, the shapes of spaces and the, ma mm -hmm. you know, the massiveness of spaces. Yes. And that's what this movie needs. That That's what this world needs. We have to really believe that we're going to this planet and, and it would take, you know, 
spaceships of this size and immensity to be able to to kind of um, conquer this planet or even survive in this planet. These massive cavernous um, buildings that they have to live in to hide from the sunlight, all of that stuff. Uh, was just fascinating to me. And even before they get to Arrakis, um, you know, when we uh, were on Paul's home world and these people too seem to live in the dark a lot. So many scenes are going down these hallways and I love to touch like this glowing lamp that just floats Mm -hmm. alongside a character and just, you know, something production design like that, envisioning like in the future, what if lamps followed people around? And we're, we're always there with us. Maybe that's because of, you know, to, to save, it's like an economy thing or a resource thing, but whatever the reason, it's just that sort of stuff that is in auteurist touch. I think the sound design in this movie, a lot of people are talking about, you know, if you're comfortable with it, you really need to see this, um, on a big screen. And it is true for the imagery. I would say it was, it is equally important for the sound design, the way this movie rumbles, the way this movie buzzes. The first thing we hear, um, is a really interesting, uh, talk about being pulled from the book, but, um, a subtitled garbling we hear it and it says dreams are messages from the deep. We're back to, mm-hmm. to Lynch right there. Why Lynch might've been drawn to the material. But all of the sounds going on in this movie that that create that sense of space, too. So I think those were sort of the auteurist things that that carried me through a little bit more than you. Now, I will say, um, even not knowing the story was going to end, um, it is somewhat of a generic isn't the right word, but familiar narrative, a hero's journey, as you said. And what I don't think Dune this Dune has is some of the things that um, Villeneuve's other films that I like more do have, which is in Arrival, I would say a very strong emotional pull um, Mm -hmm. to the characters and their experiences there. And then in Blade Runner 2049, I just love the existential angst kind of like seeping out of that movie. Now, those two also had the same level of production design, which is why I think they're both stronger films. Um, But yet I still think this is a really good one. Yeah, I agree with most, if not all, of what you said there. I think the world being otherworldly yet tactile is a perfect way to put it. I was even rewatching some scenes today on my computer, so much smaller screen than we saw it on, and yet you still get the effect and feel the impact of the cinematography and the scale of it. These desert shots, for example, where the aircraft or any type of craft that is moving along it is barely detectable on the screen. And if you think about it in comparison to something like a Star Wars or a lot of sci-fi films we're accustomed to seeing, despite the vastness of space in these planets, there's always a sense that the characters are kind of primary in the shot. The different vehicles and aircraft are primary in the shot. And here, you really have to struggle to kind of make them out. It's as if Villeneuve is constantly trying to reinforce this idea of how huge the universe is and how small we ultimately are within it, despite the kind of potency of the battles that are taking place here among these different houses and the journey that these characters are on and how important, how weighty it all seems to them in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's pretty minor. And I love to touch where we actually take a moment. Chalamet's character wanders out into his new home on Arrakis and he runs into a character who is 
using an abundance of water to keep these trees alive. And they have a conversation about it and how much water it does take, how many men that water would keep alive. And Chalamet asks the question about whether or not then it makes sense to, to keep them, to even keep watering them and to have them here. It doesn't seem as if many people are paying attention to the trees either. And he gets an explanation back that he seems to concur with. And there's a moment later when the Harkonnen attack where we see those same trees up in flames. And Villeneuve doesn't otherwise really call much attention to it. But if you you remember that dialogue, you certainly are aware of of those trees going up in flames. And you think about all that care and all that effort to keep them alive. And just like that, they're gone. So there's something interesting kind of happening there in terms of the, the symbolism of it. These people having to decide what actually is important, giving these trees that that value and then putting in the work to actually maintain them. But then there's also a part of it that gets back to what you were saying in terms of just the tactile nature of this world. The fact that we do kind of pause and pay attention to those trees within this vast space. Yeah, that that's what it is. That's that's giving attention to the details that really matter in making us believe in this place. Um, just real quickly, I would say, I think you're right about, you know, the vast majority of sci-fi films, but actually... I think one of the underrated strengths of Lucas's Star Wars, the first one, is his attention to scale and the way how often um, it's often the rebels or their ships that are uh, their smallness is emphasized to kind of push home, you know, how much they are at odds against the Empire. But yeah, Yeah, but I'm thinking about the Empire ships going across that frame. And the Empires are like what what Villeneuve gives us a lot here, right, Mm -hmm. is is just this massiveness. Um, So you mentioned Chalamet a couple times there. Curious what you thought of his performance, because um, I didn't really know from what I've seen of him, you know, nothing that I can recall would be material like this, right? Unless I'm overlooking something. And I thought he was pretty at home in it. I, I, I do think that partly it goes back to that seriousness. Um, you know, he he has a comic streak to him. Obvi- absolutely. We talked about a little bit in his Little Women performance. But yeah, I, I think there's just something kind of, there can be something sort of dour um, about him mm-hmm. that he leans into here that does work. Now, the main issue I have with his character, less the performance, but his character we really can't speak to until um, we see what happens with him in part two, if we get part two. But yeah, what did you think of Chalamet? Well, you know, I am all in on Timothy Chalamet as an actor. I love him in everything I can think of Uh him being in that I've seen. And here, you know, I came home and my daughter, Sophie, who is, I'll say, a bigger fan of Chalamet than even I am was very curious to hear what I thought of his performance. And I think I said something like, it's angsty. <laughs> and, and and she's like, even more than in Lady Bird? And I was like, I don't know, actually. And if you think about that role, designed to be way more comedic. Yeah. He's obviously meant to be a hyperbolic take on an angsty pseudo-intellectual teen there's a lot of similarity, I would say, between these two characters. So I don't know, Josh, maybe I feel like Chalamet has definitely played this type of character before. I I do think, for me, maybe I just got more used to him as the movie went on. But early on, there were too many scenes of cutting to him making 
a face that just did not give me anything more than whatever note he was playing in that moment. And in a movie like this, with as much that seems to be swirling around and inside this character, I needed a little bit more depth. I needed the same kind of depth I got. And maybe this is unfair because you think about performers like this who are maybe at the peak of their powers. But I needed what I got when I looked at Oscar Isaac's face or when I yeah. looked at Rebecca Ferguson's yeah, face. They're, they're both great. They're just on another level yes. here than than Chalamet. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I I guess I, I thought he would stick out. My fear was he would stick out a little bit more like a sore thumb. But um, but I, I do think he's he's at home in this for me. Now, the the character question I have is, you know, we talked about how Paul is this messianic figure and, and all that. And of course, he and his family have come to Arrakis from their home planet. So they're essentially the colonists, the imperialists, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then this gets even more potentially problematic because um, we know that there are people who have always lived on this planet, the Fremen, and we see visions of one of them played by Zendaya. And he, Paul and Zendaya's character, uh, Chani, is that it? I'm just Chani. pulling. Oh, wow. Look at me with all the Dune stuff. Uh, Chani, they uh, eventually connect towards the end of the film. And you've got two kind of, you know, troubling tropes here, right? You've got the white savior as he joins in with the Fremen who are fighting against their occupiers. I think even one of the earliest lines comes from Chani and she talks about who will our next oppressors be coming to this planet. Right. So you've got the white savior who falls in with the quote unquote exotic native. Um, and where we're left in this part one um, doesn't really give a lot of hint that those are going to be interrogated, those positions. Now, I've already heard um, from folks who have read my review and mentioned this, you know, that the book is all about subverting this and interrogating this. And that, that's that's fine. That's well and good. Neither of us have read the book, so we're not bringing that to this experience. I'm more interested in what Villeneuve and his co-screenwriters are going to do with those roles. And if, if that's going to be something, um, you know, the, the movie that came to mind in the wake of this, Adam, was one that we have done a Sacred Cow review of that is very similar to this in a lot of ways. Lawrence of Arabia. You know, it's it's not only Sandy, but absolutely interrogates this imperialist white savior trope in a way mm -hmm. that we both thought completely enriched the film. And given that it's a film, you know, from the 60s, surprised us in, in a couple of ways. So, again, we'll have to wait till part two to see if... Um, if it's something that Villeneuve is really interested in investigating or if mm -hmm. the movie is just going to kind of sit back and be be happy to be this sort of aesthetic sensory experience. Uh, if, it, if it's just that, I'll probably be disappointed. Yeah. The indictment that seems to be here or at least set up of American imperialism is interesting to consider for sure. This idea that the house Atreides comes in with the best of intentions, doesn't want to exploit people, but nevertheless, they are just the next set of oppressors. That is inherently who they are. And you think about America going into any situation, right? Whether or not the people who are making the decisions actually have any altruistic motivations whatsoever, they all do it under the same guise, which is we're doing it to better them. We're, we're liberators, right? We're, we're spreading democracy, whatever it is. So you get that element here with Atreides, but you also get this idea that comes through in something Oscar Isaac says as Duke Leto, which is the great houses look to us for leadership. And 
that's always been what we've pretended, at least pretended to believe that the United States status in the world was right is we're the the model for all of these other countries. We're going to be the moral compass that everyone turns to. And of course, more often than not, we fall short there. So I'm curious too, to see how much that really does come through in part two. I'll also just say, having watched the Lynch one, talked about it here on the show, knowing where it goes from a plot standpoint and seeing so much of what we saw unfold in that version, unfold in this version, told in a different way as we've noted, but a lot of the same plot points are hit. I know what the last 25 or 30 minutes of the 84 Dune are, and I am eager, I suppose, to see what Villeneuve is going to do with that material and how he is going to make that that same climax, because that is the climax of the 84 Dune, into this entire picture, something that feels satisfying as a part two. And I know one of the things that's going to be improved on, because it has to be, is that we're surely going to get more of an understanding of who Chani is. We're actually going to get to see her as a character and not just this vision that he keeps having. And even when we meet her, it just doesn't feel like we get to know much about her or get to really have any sense of who she is. And again, I know that that's going to come through in part two, but that was actually a problem I had. If you remember with Lynch's Dune as well, you don't ever see Paul really express his love for her and really act on it and vice versa to an extent. You see them kiss you, you hear what we're told is happening to their love but we don't really ever feel it. Well, you definitely don't feel it here because we don't even get those elements yeah. here. Yeah, we're, we're not at that point um, yet. And abs- if you're going into this, you know, interested to see um, Zendaya's performance, you're going to be sorely disappointed because you're really right. disappointed. It's She may open the film with that. I think it's a voiceover. Or she may appear in one of those visions. You get a few visions here or there, and then she's around for maybe the last 10 to 15 minutes. But again, um, more as this mysterious figure there still even. So we'll see. And apparently, you know, something else I didn't realize is there is no set plan to make part two. It's going to depend on um, whether or not the studio thinks uh, there is money in it. So um, yeah, if if they don't end up doing that, uh, then this is all the Zendaya you'll get. Uh, and that's, that's, yeah, not enough for this movie for sure. It's really not. How about Skarsgård's performance, Stellan Skarsgård? You know, as the Baron, which I guess I'll just say this about it. It seems like a very clear nod to Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, right? Oh, with yeah, the, the bald head. <laughs> sure. With the bald head, the way he even in close up kind of touches his head. It yeah. seems as if Villeneuve was like, go ahead and channel your Colonel Kurtz. Go for it, Stellan Skarsgård. The robe, the kind of yep. like the, the robe he's in. Um, and that's maybe the one point I've said how this is so serious, and you've said how it sidesteps camp. I do think those scenes. Um, I could see my register as campy for some people. I don't know how you do that character though. Um, now that I've seen two iterations of him, this kind of floating, uh, you know, mm-hmm. disgusting, uh, villain. I don't know how you do that, uh, in a way that might not lend itself to, to a couple giggles here and there. So that was the only part in the movie that, um, that kind of, uh, the tone shifted a little bit for me. What, oh, but you know what else? We, we have to talk about the worms, the sandworms. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a litmus too, right? If the effects were just so 
poor in the 84 version. Um, I, I will say, you know, I'm always suspicious when um, special effects take place in the rain or at night. It's pretty dark. Pretty dark for the big sandworm scene here, but I do think it still works. Again, it comes back to the tactile nature that there's something like when the mouths open and there's there's these um, fibers in their throats you can see. Yeah. And just the way those moves give it gave it enough of uh, a sense for me that could actually be in the same space as the actors. Dune is currently playing in wide release, also available, I believe, on HBO Max. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We are definitely going to bring the spice to Massacre Theater, which is next. Plus, Kate Winslet joins Jane Campion's Parade of Wild Women in Holy Smoke, the fifth film in our Campion Oeuvre review. Stay with us. It's a little damp. Physically or metaphorically? Both, based on the cover and the first four sentences. Don't criticize my manifesto. Oh, you don't want remarks? I don't need remarks, do I? I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. Let's start with the typos. Alas, the Timothy Chalamet double feature did not come to pass this weekend. That was Chalamet with Francis McDormand in a clip from Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which, like Dune, opens in theaters this weekend. You've seen it. You've reviewed it, Josh. So I'm not going to be surprised. I know that you are favorable. I don't know why you are favorable. And we will have to suss that out next week on the show. I won't spoil anything. I think you're going to like Chalamet a little better here, though. I will say that. Maybe more his comedic speed. I mean, it's funny. He's very funny. Next week, we will get to our French Dispatch review along with the next film and our Jane Campion oeuvre review, 2003's In the Cut, with Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo, another one of Campion's films like this week's subject, Holy Smoke, that did fail critically and commercially upon its release, but over time, its reputation has improved. We'll see if it has improved with us. I was pretty mild on it the first time I saw it. Josh, do you remember your reaction to In the Cut? Uh, I think I was like right down the middle, kind of wishy-washy. So mm -hmm. I can't claim to be a detractor or one of those early supporters, uh, which means, you know, this will be my chance to really decide. Also next week, we'll get results from the current film spotting poll, which asks, what is the best soundtrack, not score, but soundtrack from the last decade? Sounds like Inside Lewin Davis and Guardians of the Galaxy are getting a lot of love from voters so far. But Adam, you're going to like hearing this. Also doing well is the soundtrack that listener Phil Schmidt voted for. He said, it's the only one with Drive It Like You Stole It. Well done, Phil. Other options we gave you, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Wright's latest, Last Night in Soho, is the inspiration for this poll. And a couple other options here. Steve McQueen's Lovers Rock, 
and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Black Panther. Or you could always vote other, and you can do that in the poll. You can also leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Speaking of Edgar Wright and Last Night in Soho, a screening here in Chicago, an advanced screening, a free one, is taking place on Tuesday night, October 26th. We are excited to give away some free passes, Josh, to our listeners in the Chicagoland area. Just go to filmspotting.net, click on Episodes at the top of the page, and click on this episode. It's episode 846. You will find a link to enter to win those free passes to last night in Soho. You might even see myself or Josh there. No promises, though. We also have something else to give away, Josh. We love giving away Blu-rays if we have them, and we have them, five of them, for M. Night Shyamalan's old, a movie you recommended, Josh. I did indeed. Pro-old. I am (laughs) pro-old. It's available now on 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray, and digital. This is, of course, the chilling, mysterious thriller about a family on a tropical holiday who discover that the secluded beach where they are relaxing for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. All you have to do to win one of those five Blu-ray copies is email feedback at filmspotting.net. Your subject line is old... And in the body, you're not going to tell us your favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie. You're going to tell us your favorite performance in an M. Night Shyamalan movie. What do you think, Josh? So your mind immediately goes to Haley Joel Osment, I think, in Sixth Sense. Maybe Tony Collette there as well. Bruce Willis, Samuel yeah. Jackson in Unbreakable. Good options, I think. Now, were you, are you, I know you're a fan of James McAvoy. Did you like him in Split and Glass? I like him in Split and Glass, yes. Okay, all right. That sounded that sounded right. Lady in the Water, maybe you want to go with Paul Giamatti. Now, The Village, this question, Adam, had me look up. I remember, you know, a couple people in The Village, but I just so wanted to Bill see. Bill Hurt, yep. Joaquin Phoenix. There you go. Bryce Dallas Howard. Nice. Listen to the rest of this cast. Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver. Weaver. There you go. Adrian Brody, Brendan Gleeson. I mean, I didn't remember them being in this Judy Greer. So yeah, a bunch of ways you could go if you want to enter this contest. Yeah, I don't know my answer right now. It's probably one of the choices from The Sixth Sense, but I also really do love Willis in Unbreakable, which is a masterclass in minimalism. So maybe that would be my pick. We want to know your picks. We'll pick five winners at random and announce them on next week's show. Again, Old is available now on 4K, UHD and Blu-ray and digital. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's Family History Part 2. They're discussing the many saints of Newark. Previously, they talked about The Godfather Part 2. Regular co-hosts Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps are joined this week by film writer Jason Bailey. He's got a new book, Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, coming out on October 26. Now, The following week, it's going to be their 300th episode. We'll see if Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson are back for that one. But they're going to be a pairing that makes a lot of sense based on our conversation we just had, Dune and Lawrence of Arabia. 300 episodes of The Next Picture Show really does warm my heart to hear because it seems like just yesterday I was on the phone with Genevieve Kosky saying, Hey, Sam, Film Spotting's producer and I have been kicking around this idea The dissolve has dissolved, but we think it's absurd to imagine a world where we're not regularly hearing from this quartet. What if we did sort of a movie of the week style 
podcast like you were doing online at the Dissolve, and they went for it, and here we are, Josh, 300 episodes later. Yeah, that that is insane. I, I would have guessed like maybe two or three years, but they have been putting out a ton of good shows since then and can't wait to hear the 300th. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info is at nextpictureshow.com. Net. One way you can support the show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get early show downloads and you get monthly bonus episodes. October's bonus content we're actually going to be recording here shortly. It's an Ask Us Anything edition. So family members got to ask us anything. They send in some great questions. We picked out three this week that we thought were the meatiest and we'll see how it goes. And if it's something we want to do again, the first time we ever fully kind of turned the topics over to the listeners versus giving them some different options to vote on. Usually a movie that we haven't talked about on the show or some other special topic. We'll see how family members feel about that bonus show and We give our family members the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events with our trivia master, Thomas Todd. Our next one is November, November 6th, to be exact. It's going to be a Saturday matinee, some great captains lined up. And a quick note, because the list felt a little light last week, so I want to remedy it. We forgot to mention that our PA, Kat Sullivan, her mother, Amy Sullivan, likes to participate in trivia spotting and our last edition with Michael Phillips as her captain. She emerged as a winner, failed to include her in the list of winners last week. Josh, want to oh give Amy Sullivan her due. Yes. I apologize, Amy and belated congratulations. I'm sure we congratulated you that night too, but yeah, I think we did, but we didn't give her credit in front of all of film spotting nation. And we have now done that. If you would like to be a family member, Join us, patreon.com slash filmspotting. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Oh my God, why are you so mad at me? Because this is not an opera. What? I said this is not an opera. You think I think this is an opera? Yes. You think I think this is dramatic? I think you're very young. What does that have to do with anything? If anything, I think it means I care more than someone who's older because this kind of thing has never happened to me before. No, it means you care more easily. There's a big difference. So that was Jeannie Berlin and Anna Paquin in 2011's Margaret, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan. Along with that massacre, we had our Jane Campion review review of The Piano. That was Paquin's debut and a preview of the Chicago International Film Festival. So why that scene from the little scene Margaret, which never got a proper release and doesn't even exist in a version approved by Lonergan and yet remains one of the best films of the 21st century? Perhaps. Sam Van Hollegren, our producer, definitely a fan. I'm a fan as well. And so is Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama, who says, recognized it immediately. This comes from Lonergan's masterpiece, Margaret. Obviously, its star, Anna Paquin, won an Oscar for her role in the piano. She should have been in contention for a second based on her performance here. Were the film not abandoned after a contentious edit by its distributor? Again, that's Corey Kraft. He's in Birmingham. Roll Tide. 
Here's David L. Williams from Belfont, Pennsylvania. My impression of the correct response is the criminally underrated, ridiculously underseen, totally greatest movie ever, Margaret. Yeah, pretty close. I saw it. I think it's very good in some places. Overlong, repetitive, and overdone in others. Still a little surprised at the superlatives, but ah well, not everybody loves everything with the burning fire of a million suns. <laughs> David just coming in to tear down his wow. fellow playwright, Kenneth Lonergan, and really tearing down... All of our listeners who adore this movie, I was going to say all of the listeners who entered Massacre Theater and adore this movie, but that's not very many. We ended up with 13. Wow. I mean, that really has to be a record low. It's up there. If not number one, it's in the top three. That is for sure. That means the odds were in your favor. If you were one of those 13, Josh, who is this week's lucky winner? Those odds favored Keith Hook Up the Doll Moser from Allentown, Pennsylvania. I think this is two weeks in a row that Keith has won something on Film Spotting. Last week it was the Fast Nine Blu-ray set. Oh wow! And now he gets a Film Spotting T-shirt. He should buy a lottery ticket. Apparently, congrats, Keith. Congratulations, indeed. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with that Film Spotting T-shirt. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. Five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, a scene we just watched. That was our prep, uh-huh. our extensive prep for the scene. And <laughs> we are still both a little shaken up. Yeah, I might I might need a moment here. And th- this is a yeah. movie that we've actually seen and I believe reviewed. So we reviewed it. This isn't this isn't new shock. This is this scene just has this performance has the ability to shock you every time you see it. Yeah. I think. And guess what? I hope you're ready to deliver. <laughs> oh boy. There's you're doing it. There's something almost physical I think I have to do with my throat and jaw to, yeah, to kind of get just, to this. Tap into your days as a smoker, Josh. You'll be fine. Oh, There's man. a little bit of a wheezing might factor be, here. Tr- yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's you're, you're you're constricted. There's there's a tremendous weight on your chest. That's the direction I'm going to give you. Okay. And this is just for you, Adam. I'm also going to incorporate the hand gestures. Unfortunately, okay, good. listeners will not be oh, able man. to appreciate that, but I think it'll Someday. help me. I think it'll help me. Someday, with this scene. when we when we launch the film spotting TikTok, you'll be able to see these. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to start it off. I'd ask you if you're ready, but I know you're not. Nope. Let's just okay. go. Give me the action. And action. Where's my family? You should have stayed dead. I am not your mother. No. My mother never cleaned a toilet in her life. Maybe that was her problem. My mother. My mother taught me what was necessary to rule in this universe. Like killing people? I create life! And I destroy it. (laughs) And And scene. scene. I think the hands helped. That was terrifying. Yeah, the hands, I think you needed them. You needed the gesture in order to deliver the psychology. (laughs) Was it, were you getting more from me there than you did from Chalamet in Dune? Yeah, I was. Oh, and I love it. How about this, too? What a pro. Going big on I Create Life. And it, it still had the force, but you didn't you didn't never go into the red. You I never know. you never made it distorted, Josh. That is that is a pro. I've been working on that. Thank you. After many years of, of distorted massacre theater, I appreciate that you noticed. If you know what film we just massacred, 
email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 1st. I now imagine every time I say something you disagree with, you'll just shout that at me. <laughs> I create life and I destroy it. Yeah. Uh, won't ever really apply, but I'm going to use it anyway. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. You're a cynic. Yes. Yes, I'm a cynic. Because I investigate crap. What about the crap in you, Ruth? Did you take that to the guru? You're a sh You don't care about me. You don't even know me. And I didn't go to Baba to get my toughness fixed. Well, you'd be the first. All right, so I hoped it would help me grow. I know I'm not perfect. We get back to our Jane Campion overview with Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel in a scene from 1999's Holy Smoke. This Campion retrospective is in anticipation of her upcoming film, The Power of the Dog, that comes to theaters next month. Now, for casual movie fans, Holy Smoke is maybe where Jane Campion kind of went off the grid a little bit. She'd followed up her breakthrough success, the Oscar winning The Piano, with another prestige period drama, 1996's The Portrait of a Lady. That one didn't go quite as well as The Piano commercially or critically. It did play in wide release, though, and got some attention from the Academy. Then in late 99, we got Holy Smoke. This one written by Campion along with her sister, Anna. It's a sexually explicit sort of comedy. Yeah, I think you could call it a comedy, yeah. about a 20-something Australian woman, Ruth, played by Kate Winslet, who gets caught up in a religious cult on a visit to India. Her family hires an American cult deprogrammer, played by Keitel, to return her to her senses. But things don't go quite as planned when, confined to an isolated cabin where this uh, deprogramming is supposed to take place, Ruth starts to turn the tables on Keitel's PJ Waters. Holy Smoke came out in late 99 in the glut of Oscar hopefuls and never played on more than 90 screens in limited release. It made just over a million bucks at the box office, receiving mixed reviews from critics. And Josh, so far in this overview, we haven't strayed too much from popular opinion. We both really admired Campion's earliest efforts, her debut Sweetie and follow up An Angel at My Table. We loved the piano and Portrait of a Lady was fine, had a lot to admire definitely benefited from seeing it in the context of these other Campion films. So what of Holy Smoke? Consensus at the time was that this was, at best, a compelling misfire, at worst, a complete mess. Did audiences and critics miss the boat back in 99? Man, only 90 screens? I mean, women filmmakers really didn't get a long rope after think of the male filmmakers who would have a success with the Oscars, like the piano mm -hmm. and how many movies they would be allowed to make and would be released on hundreds of screens. That just occurred to me right now. Campion, they were done with pretty quickly, huh? I, I liked this film when I first saw it, but I will admit that that was in 2013, I believe. So, you know, after seeing a number of other Campion films and already being a pretty big fan of hers, I can't pretend if I had seen it in 99 that I might not have also thought What's going on here? This is a little off the beaten path, and I'm not sure if it entirely works. Um, but I did like it in 2013, and I, I like it now. I like it quite a bit. I don't think it's perfect. It's it's not the piano, obviously, but it's very Campion in some ways, and maybe mostly with the humor. I, I can't wait to hear what you think. Completely new 
from mm-hmm. what we've seen from her. And I think there's just this a jarring experience that takes place because of that. But Winslet is out of this world. I think the performance is great, but I'm just going to fess up right now. I'm a little helpless in the face of this manifestation of Kate Winslet around 1999. And the the film just shoots her gorgeously. Mm-hmm. But the performance is fantastic. And it is, it's a battle of the sexes where sex is the weapon. I don't know how you could get more campion than that. So even though some parts might not work as well as others, uh, that was enough. Both times I've seen this film, that's been enough to kind of keep me uh, pretty enthralled by it. Yeah. I don't know that I would call it a compelling misfire or a complete mess. It's something better than a compelling misfire, though it is. How's this for a scientific term? It's a wacky film. There is a point where this movie (laughs) does sort of go off the rails, and I think it's when the family appears Mm. and decides to take them out of the hut that they're in and they go to a bar and that's where the tables turn on this relationship. I think they'd already maybe started to go there, but that's really where the film shifted dramatically for me. And that shift is something I do respect about the movie, even if it really kind of upended my expectations. You're watching this film thinking, despite the other campion movies we've watched and knowing how unconventional they've been, you're watching it thinking is, is campion going to make like a taut duel here, a a real psychological thriller, despite those elements of comedy that are undeniably there and there in a way that we haven't seen in any of her other films. I completely agree with that. It feels like the movie might be going down that path where it's going to be about this attempt to break her will. And he's probably going to succeed in his plan to deprogram her. He certainly seems supremely confident and has the numbers to back it up in terms of successfully doing this 189 times before. Or is she going to be able to turn it back on him and break him down? And this being Campion, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that what we get is sort of neither And both at the same time, Hmm. (laughs) like she does. And I guess here we're going to get a little bit into spoiler territory as we usually do with these overview films and some of these sacred cow discussions. She does break her attachment to Baba, which is the point of the deprogramming. At least it seems like she does. But in the process, she becomes a Baba like figure to him. And it just again, is so fitting for Campion that she's just not interested in something so neat. And this gets really messy. Lipstick, red dress wearing, messy. This kind of folly that she loves to explore of human desire battling against reason. And desire is going to almost always win out, but but nobody really wins in a Campion film the way I see it. Yeah, it would be way too simple to she wouldn't be interested in a story where Ruth becomes the winner. You know that we know this by now mm-hmm. from from her films. I, I think the more interesting question is, um, are either of these people in a different place at the end of this film than they were at the beginning that is compelling, interesting, believable in its own way, even though some pretty extreme stuff happens here. And I think the answer there for me is yes. You know, I I think what PJ Waters learns is, you know, he, he doesn't set out to 
uh, manipulate her and use sex as a weapon. But you can see that's kind of part of his understanding of himself. Um, yes. You know, he sees himself as this masculine sexual figure. And I think, you know, by being dominated by her, eventually he learns a little bit, you know, what sex can be when it's separated from control. So that's kind of his journey. And hers is, you know, maybe even more complicated, but just this idea of um, how she employs cruelty when she has the power and how she combines sexuality with cruelty and what mm-hmm. what that costs, not only the person that she's abusing, but what it costs her. And I just think those are really complicated Maybe that makes it even sound too clean cut, like they both learned a lesson at the end of this. And I don't think that's it. I just think that they're different people at the end of this, um, mm-hmm. maybe in in better ways, healthier ways. But watching that journey is just fascinating because you never know where it's going to go. You don't know what's going to happen you don't. in any given scene. And this is where I want to get back to Winslet's performance uh, and really emphasize what I think is so spectacular about it is that this is a character who is never entirely sure of her motivations. But that's not a fault of the film because you see how it could be, right? Because she could be, she could read as inconsistent or frustrating or we just can't get a read on her. But mm-hmm. with Winslet, Winslet is so raw, so impulsive that we understand Ruth is someone who's asking herself what her motivations are in the very moment she's behaving a certain way. And Winslet gives us all of that. We can sense that. There's a good mystery to this character. And there's just that fierceness that Winslet has always had in her best performances. I love the moment when she first walks up to PJ. This is after she's been tricked to go to this outback cabin and her family members have ominously surrounded her, that circle of men that surrounds mm-hmm. her. What an image, right? And she realizes she can't escape. So she marches up to PJ and uh, just looks at him. And you can, what's on her face is just so disarming. And you can tell it immediately throws him off. So even though he's the one in charge there, it's a very early hint that this is not going to go the way any of them or us think it's going to go. So this is, you know, just another fascinating Campion woman, someone who's who's trapped in some ways we've seen before, mm-hmm. but also completely unchecked. It's like being imprisoned in this way somehow frees her to be maybe her worst self. Yeah. And all of that is in Winslet's performance. What do you like about me? Do you like my personality or do you like my breasts best? All right, Ruth, right now I like your breasts it's just the way it is. You can't stop me from having sexual thoughts about you. Oh, yeah? And what do you think? What are your thoughts? They're private. <laughs> well, not the other night. How was it for you? A bit revolting. You're right. There are so many similarities to other campion heroines that we've seen and there are nuances as well and i think the key to the movie i'm completely with you is ruth it is winslet's performance and there's something she's able to do physically that is so subtle with just sort of a i can't even describe it really a hardening of her demeanor Mm. or a softening of her entire essence she can be a completely different person and there really isn't any more calculation to it. It's really something to watch an actress like Winslet pull this off. And I think what it is too is that she's able to capture the sense of Ruth as a person who 
has a complete history, and we understand that history, even though we actually have not seen any of it. And what I mean by that is that when we meet her, and I want to talk about the opening of the film in particular, but when we meet her and we get sort of a shorthand version of her journey to enlightenment, and then even when she comes back and we start to see some of the psychological battles she engages in with Kaitel's character, all of those things about using her looks, using her body, her perception of herself as someone who is mean and cruel and who is seeking kindness and seeking the ability to be a kind person, that doesn't feel with Winslet like it's something the character is just saying in the moment. You you feel like you know before the movie began exactly who this person was and what her struggles were and exactly what she's trying to overcome. Again, despite the fact that we don't actually see any of that take place. And that brings me back to that opening, which is this amazing use of a Neil Diamond song. Happens at least one other time in this movie. Another scene I love that we'll talk about. Holly, holy. And it it seems like it's non-diegetic and that we don't see anybody performing it in the moment, though it sounds like the sound quality itself comes off as if it is happening within the world of the movie. And then we finally do discover that, that it is emanating from this space and people are dancing to this song. There's a little bit of reverie at this party, but that's about three minutes and 50 seconds long. The beginning of this film, all edited to this song and within it, despite the fact that we don't hear her say much of anything. And again, despite the fact that we really don't know who Ruth is, all we have to do is watch Winslet, watch that group of women walk by the group of Baba's followers who seem so happy. Mm. They seem like they've found an answer and just looking at the way she looks at them, you know, how desperately she's seeking something like that. And you completely understand how she ends up being part of this cult. And all we're getting and all Campion's giving us really is, again, a couple minutes of looks like that and actions like that. And it's all we need. It tells the whole story of Ruth just in that four minutes. I even love how about the, the first shot we see of Ruth isn't her full body. It's her hands and some other people's hands on the roof of this this bus as it's moving through India. And even that image, Josh, at least to me, felt so interesting and profound. It's as if at one moment they're beseeching or kind of yearning to the sky, but also hanging on for dear life, which kind of sums up the roller coaster of this movie pretty well. Yeah, one of those, uh, they're a little longer than insert shots, but the, those little, you know, almost throwaway images that Campion manages to grab that say so much. I also like how in that same sequence, you know, we're introduced, this begins with another obscured point of view shot. I don't think we've we've talked about this, but I've noticed it in a couple of films now. In this case, it's Ruth's point of view looking out of that bus um, and seeing the street going yeah. by. Very similar, I could think of the one in An Angel at My Table where a young Janet Frame is looking out of a train and it's kind of like there's something in front of their field of vision that's blocking mm-hmm. what they're trying to see. We've seen that a couple of times. So how about all of what you said is true about that prologue and it's very rooted in real experience and getting us into Ruth's psychology, but then we get that psychedelic yeah. moment after she is touched by the guru on the forehead. 
it's kind of the, I think her friend calls it freaky hypnotism, <laughs> that sequence. I mean, that is completely new sort of imagery than anything else we've seen, really, um, where her eyes go, the special effects used there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of, you know, that's totally new along with, as I said before, the, the broad comedy. And I'm with you on the family. I think, you know, it gets to be slapstick at some point. And I don't know if that works quite as well for me, even on this second go around there's a use of fast motion even comic fast motion yeah but i do think maybe the funniest moment is that other use of neil diamond when we see pj waters arriving at the airport what right? a character introduction oh, that's the other goodness. scene i was thinking of oh, right my i mean both of them and, and there's a deliberate symmetry in these characters as this movie really does become about their showdown and their transformations it makes sense that we get this great introduction to her and we get a similarly great very different but a great introduction to Kaitel's character when he lands in Australia. Yeah, and he's this is where like the macho sexuality is so much a part of his character, right? He's putting his boots up on the luggage in kind of this like show-off position uh, on the luggage rack as the suitcases come flying down. He grabs a luggage cart and spins it around. I think he yeah. sends it to a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like this it's- it's very rhythmic. There's something He's almost dancing. musical about it. Yeah. He is dancing in that space. And we've seen that from Campion a few times. There are a couple other shots like that in this film, even where it it feels a little bit odd, but dogs barking at a moment when the people in the scene, the tension in the scene is very amped up and there's something rhythmic and musical about that shot as well. So just choosing to introduce us to Kaitel's character and have him be this man in black with the sunglasses walking through the airport, looking kind of stoic, but stunning and impervious to anything that's happening around him. And all those people struggling with those carts and he just walks up and with a flick of a wrist gets one of the carts and spins it to someone. It's so good. There is also right before that, the only actually funny moment in this film. It's a visual joke, and I love it. It's the only moment I truly think that works as comedy in the movie. And that's a transition from a scene with Ruth to Kaitel landing. And just before we see him getting off the plane, we just see like a boy's arm with a Qantas jet toy moving it through the air. And he makes the the sound that we all make when we play with airplanes. And he just kind of then shoves it into like an army man on the table and that's it i don't even know who the boy is maybe i missed it josh maybe he's one of the family members one of the kids in this extended family you just see his arm it's like five seconds long and it's the version of the you know the raiders of the lost arc shot where the the travel sequence occurs and we see the map you know the line moving on the map except here it's a kid with a Qantas airplane depicting a landing that's that's his flight I thought that was hilarious anyway (laughs) so so you think Kaitel is good in that scene that follows how how does he work over all the performance once we get all the way to the other end and he's required to be this guy who is broken down who is putting on the dress and the lipstick at her command and becomes helpless did he make that transition for you yeah it feels like a loaded question and then maybe he didn't for you but i really like kaitel throughout this entire film and i think it's because maybe he doesn't shift as much as you think he would the fact that he still seems like he is hanging on to his masculinity, even as 
he is letting go. It just makes it feel like there is this conflict inside him and that he isn't really able to surrender himself and to be vulnerable. And that worked for me in the character. Yeah, I know. I actually like him in this. I think, I mean, he's, he's much better in the piano. I think it's, you know, just, uh, obviously a very different character. I think this one plays more off of our expected impression of Harvey Keitel and Mm -hmm. what sort of characters he usually plays. The piano did a little bit too, but this one really, I feel like he was chosen to completely subvert that sort of persona that he had. And I think it works overall. It works. I also love the Dion Beebe cinematography here. He will go on to shoot uh, Campions in the Cut, which we're talking about next as well. I mean, I don't know what's lit more gorgeously. We've got, you know, Winslet, of course, but also the Outback at Magic Hour, just the redness of the earth and Mm -hmm. the blueness of the sky. It's a really, really beautiful film to look at as well. So, so yeah, I think there's plenty to recommend this one, even if... um, the the supreme command of the material that we've seen in some of Campion's other features might not quite be there. Yeah, I really like Julie Hamilton, too, as her mother in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Although the sequences, I do think that prologue where then she comes, I guess this is a little later in the film, actually, mm-hmm. but she comes to actually tell her, lie to her that her father's sick and she needs to come back home. Um, relies a little bit, a little heavily on the scariness of India, uh, you know, and is kind of like, we need to understand how out of place the mother feels, but it really leans pretty hard on that in a way that's kind of, I don't know if I need to push that far. I do see what you're saying, but at the same time, it, it also seems like Campion's portraying it a little bit like it's mostly in her head. Yeah, I didn't didn't quite get there. I didn't quite. Hmm. I mean, she's it's I think it's played for comedy mostly as well. You know, it's that we're supposed to understand her distress and kind of laugh at her, which is maybe what you're getting at, that she's Mm -hmm. she's being exaggerated about this. So, yeah, maybe that's in play, too. Well, I will also just note that I was struck by the music here, the score being Angelo Badalamente. And there is a shot in this movie to bring back David Lynch into the conversation here as we talked about Dune earlier. There's a shot in this movie late in the film where a car's going down the highway and we hear a Badalamente piece of music and I was sure I was watching Twin Peaks <laughs> or or another Lynch film in that moment. It was very surreal to all of a sudden have that intense feeling watching this film. So I wanted to acknowledge that and acknowledge Lamente being great as he always is. Holy Smoke is available to rent on most platforms. You can also check your library or interlibrary loan. Next up, we will talk about In the Cut from 2003, starring Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo. You can get more about our Jane Campion overview, including the full lineup and where to watch the movies at filmspotting.net slash Campion. Josh, that's our show. Put an exclamation point on it. All right. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll there. We're asking, what is the best movie soundtrack, not score, since 2010? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, Dune. We think you should see it. 
In limited release, The Harder They Fall, a revenge western with Idris Elba, Regina King, Jonathan Majors, Delroy Lindo, Zazie Beetz, Lakeith Stanfield. That is an incredible cast. It comes to Netflix on November 3rd as well. The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne is out. This is a biopic about the eccentric 19th century British artist played by Benedict Cumberbatch, not to be confused with the French Dispatch. That film from Wes Anderson comes out as well in limited release, and we will talk about it on next week's show. Can't wait. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.